everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning! Wow, it's so good to see you today! My name is Avery, and I'm a resident here at Discovery. <laughs> Thank you! <laughs> and I'll go ahead and answer that question that Dave asked. Something that I am looking forward to is that I'm graduating college in two and a half weeks. <laughs> Thank you, oh my gosh. I'm so excited. Right now, like, my senioritis is so bad. I am so ready to be done. But thankfully, something that's good is that my classes are actually really interesting. So that's, that's helping me get through it. We're so close. <laughs> Right now, my favorite class is called Advanced Argumentation Theory, and it's all about the way that people construct arguments, how we think about what's reasonable, what's rational, and the way that we use power dynamics and argue with each other in our different relationships. It's fascinating, and my professor is super great. One of the first things he asked on the first day of class, he asked us this question, what was the first argument you ever had? So we had to go around the room and share the earliest argument that we remember, and I want to give you an opportunity to think about that right now. What's the first argument that you ever remember having? It could be something you wanted, something you didn't want, something, an idea you wanted other people to follow. Get something in your mind. My first argument that I could remember when it was my turn to share was an argument that I had with my mom when I was probably in first grade. She were, we were sitting at the dining room table and she was finishing, she was helping me finish a piece of homework. I'm sure none of you have ever been in this situation with a stubborn child at the kitchen table finishing homework. And I was really done and she told me to put my name on the paper and I said, okay, and I put my name on the paper. And then she said, okay, now put the date on the paper. And I said, no. <laughs> and she said, why not? And I said, well, my teacher only had me put my name on the paper. She didn't, put the, she didn't say put the date. And my mom tried to explain to me that it's like best practice generally to put the date on the papers that you're working on. And I wasn't having it. I refused to put the date on the paper. We went back and forth. And that was the first argument that I remember having. <laughs> As we went around and shared these early arguments that we had, my professor kept, kept saying, okay, that's good, but think earlier. Think earlier. What's earlier than that? No, first grade's too old. What, er what argument did you have before that? And eventually, when we'd all shared, and nobody had anything earlier, we'd kind of run out of ideas, he said that people generally have their first argument when they're about two or three years old, and everybody's first argument is about fairness. So if you've ever been with a two-year-old who said, that's not fair, that's a universal human experience. We all do that. My professor suggested that these early arguments about fairness show us that by the time a human is about two years old, they already have an idea of morals and justice and what is right and wrong. When we're little, we tend to be pretty vocal about the injustices that we see, and when we're older, as we age and grow and learn about manners and social norms, we tend to quiet down a little bit. We keep a little bit more of that to ourselves, but our morals guide us through our life and help us make judgments and justify our actions as we go. Oh no. Is that better? Wonderful, thanks Alex. Oh, shoot, okay. I'll get the other one too so I don't look like a pirate. Okay, there we go. <laughs> thanks Alex. 
So today, we're starting a new sermon series about the character of God. If you've been here in the last couple of weeks, you know we've been talking about mining the gap between what we believe about God and what we actually experience. And this series is going to be kind of similar, except now we're thinking about the ways, the characteristics of God as compared to the opposite human tendencies that we all have. And the first characteristic that we're talking about today is righteousness. So according to the Oxford Dictionary, righteousness is defined as the quality of being morally right or justifiable. As I've processed this in the last couple of weeks leading up to this sermon, I've realized that righteousness is not a word that I really use in my vocabulary very often. Instead, when I think of righteousness, the first thing that comes to my mind is actually self-righteousness. That's a term that I hear a lot more frequently, and it's one that I've actually used in conversation a couple times. When I use self-righteousness, I use it to describe someone's behavior, and believe it or not, it's never a compliment. In the past, when I've used self-righteous, I use it to describe a person who thinks they know it all, who carries themselves as morally superior, who posts about their extreme values or their extreme opinions on Facebook, or who take specific stances on issues and don't really seem to be willing to hear the alternative perspective. When I think of self-righteousness, I actually think back to those change my mind memes from like 2018. I don't know if you all remember those. But the trend started in 2018 when Steven Crowder, who's a conservative political commentator, set up a table with this sign at Texas Christian University. It says, male privilege is a myth, change my mind. Now, that's a pretty controversial statement, and I'm not going to get into it today. But as soon as that hit the internet, people started, people went crazy. They started erasing Crowder's words and putting in their own words. So they put in their own strong opinions and hot takes, but kept this tagline, change my mind. As I was looking at this this week, here are some of my favorite examples that I found. First, we've got Pop-Tarts or ravioli. <laughs> Australians are just British Texans. <laughs> and pineapple goes on pizza. Change my mind. Those memes are funny because they're a little bit ridiculous. Like, when paired with a strongly held but honestly inconsequential opinion, like Pop-Tarts or ravioli, change my mind is a strong statement that implies that the person's mind actually can't be changed. Like, they've already made up their mind, and you can come argue with me all you want, but I'm not changing my opinion. And honestly, I relate to that, because you could come up to me and argue with me about this after the service, but nothing could change my mind that pineapple is the best topping for pizza. Like, I... We'll stand on that for my whole life. It's the best. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> when I use that word self-righteous, it's always in reference to someone who I disagree with, whose opinions are not my own. I am not as quick to call someone self-righteous when they agree with me, or, even, or especially when their views support my own. Like, if you actually came up to me after the service and tried to discuss pineapple on pizza, and if you told me that pineapple doesn't belong on pizza, and I didn't feel like you were listening to me about the true reasons why pineapples do belong on pizzas, I might leave thinking that you're a little bit self-righteous. <laughs> and I do realize how hypocritical that is. As I was researching the human quality of self-righteousness and its opposite, 
God's Righteousness in preparation for this sermon, I came across a quote by Jonathan Haidt in his book, The Righteous Mind. Haidt says, an obsession with righteousness leading inevitably to self-righteousness is the normal human condition. An obsession with righteousness leading inevitably to self-righteousness is the normal human condition. If righteousness is the quality of being morally right, then self-righteousness is an attitude that puts myself and my morals and my beliefs above those of anyone else. It's an attitude that either out loud or just in my head says, I know best, and it gives me a moral platform to stand on so that I can look down on all of you thinking that I'm superior. Self-righteousness leads us to scream and cry and throw fits about fairness when we're little, And when we're older, it allows us to judge other people. It's something we're all guilty of. It's human nature. Thankfully, the Bible is full of examples of self-righteousness that are far more important than my own passion for pineapple on pizza. The Bible gives us a picture of what it looks like for self-righteousness to be transformed into righteousness. We're going to look at two stories today that have self-righteous people, a righteous God, and they focus on the opportunity that Jesus provides for us to embody the righteousness that he is. The first story we're going to talk about today comes from Luke 18, 9 through 14. And it's about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Pharisees were a culturally dominant group of Jewish people in their day, and they believed that in order to be saved, they had to follow a set of 613 laws. Some of these laws came directly from the Torah, but others were based on then-modern interpretations of Scripture. So essentially, the Pharisees cared so much about following these rules that they built man-made rules to protect the actual rules. So if someone was going to break a rule, they'd have to break a bunch of man-made rules before they could even touch the rules that actually came from Scripture. The Pharisees believed that following their rules was the best way to seek God and be saved. And following their rules was a really good goal. Pharisees had defined for themselves what was good, and they put all their energy towards following the rules perfectly and towards living in as holy a way as possible. Because of this, the Pharisees were generally seen as the upstanding citizens in their community. Tax collectors were kind of the opposite. Tax collectors were generally hated because they were known for taking more money from people than was necessary, and people really didn't like that, especially the Pharisees. So this first story that we're going to look at today is a parable, which is a story or a specific le- a story with a specific lesson that Jesus would share to teach. So here's Luke 18, 9 through 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I have. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. 
For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Pharisee and the tax collector, one who did his best to uphold the rules that he had deemed important for his life, and one who'd sinned and knew he was wrong, saw each other at the temple, and the tax collector, the one that society generally hated, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In this case, it seems like the Pharisee had built a set of standards that he believed made him a good person. He had all these rules for his life that functioned like rungs on a ladder. It's as if each good work was a rung on his ladder, bringing him higher and higher, closer to heaven, closer to God, and therefore giving him the sense that he was on some kind of moral high ground. The Pharisee felt morally superior when he followed the rules that he thought were important. He said it, I'm not a robber, I'm not an evildoer, I'm not an adulterer, I donate to the church, I fast. He's reaching for affirmation, and from all the way up on top of the ladder, he believes that he is closer and better than everybody else. Now, before we move on, I think it's important here to take a minute and mention that the works that the Pharisee is doing are not the problem here. He's following these 613 rules so closely because he wants to honor God with his life. That's a really good goal. And clearly, the Pharisee was proud of the way he'd been obedient. He was proud of the way he'd uphold, upheld the commandments. Especially today as we talk about the fine line between righteousness and self-righteousness, I think it's important to note that it's okay to do good deeds, and I think we can even be proud of the things that we do to honor God. Like, I'm sure the Pharisee was tempted to keep his money instead of donating it, or to skip a day of fasting, but he didn't do it, and that's something to be proud of. Personally, I'm proud that I'm a good student. I'm proud that I work hard at everything that I do. I have a good friend who is proud of the way that she prioritizes her friendships. This person is a really, really good friend, and there's people all across the country who are so gifted by her friendship. That's something to be proud of. Maybe you're proud of the way you handled a difficult conversation this week. Or maybe you're proud that you made it all the way out of bed and here this morning, even if your kids are missing a shoe or one of their outfits doesn't match, it's okay because you made it and you can be proud of that. In this story, the Pharisee's good actions are not the problem. Instead, the problem is that he, the way that he used his actions as a measuring stick to compare himself to the tax collector who he saw behaving differently. The Pharisee stepped up on his good works ladder and he used his platform to look down on everybody else. That's the problem. He depended on himself to define what was good and he used his standard to judge others. That's self-righteousness. The second story is similar to the first one, except that it's not a parable. This one comes from Mark, and the author of Mark wrote this down as an, an actual encounter that Jesus had with a rich young man. I like this story because I think it offers us a clear window into what it looks like to move away from self-righteousness and into righteousness. Here's Mark 10, 17 through 27. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud. Honor your mother and father. Teacher, he declared, I've kept all these since I was a boy. At this point in the story, I kind of have to stop and wonder what this man was feeling at the time. Like, did he come to Jesus fishing for compliments, for following the commandments as he had already? Maybe he believed he had already checked off all the boxes that he needed to gain eternal life, and he just wanted to hear Jesus say it. Or maybe he's a worried perfectionist who's afraid he hasn't done enough. He's looking for more boxes to check off, more rungs to add on his ladder in order to be okay. On a side note here, I think it's interesting to consider which one of these perspectives I might take if I was standing in this man's shoes. I don't know that one is better than the other, but would I come to Jesus seeking affirmation? Or would I come to him seeking instruction? Maybe both? Neither? I don't know. The story continues like this. Jesus looked at the man and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were even more, oh, I missed a verse. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed, and they said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. With God all things are possible. That part of the story, the part of the story that really strikes me is when the young man finishes telling Jesus all the things that he's done and Jesus doesn't say anything but instead looks at him and loved him. If the man was coming to Jesus looking for affirmation, he most certainly left disappointed. Jesus didn't even acknowledge all the hard work that he'd already done to keep the commandments throughout his life. And if he came seeking instruction, then he clearly left confused. Like, Jesus had identified the one area of his life that wasn't perfect, and he called him out for it. He called him out for his dependence on money and told him to get rid of it all, and I highly doubt that's what the guy expected. Honestly, when I read this story as a child, I thought it was kind of cruel. Like, the guy had already done everything right. Why did he have to give away all of his money as well? I remember sitting in Sunday school thinking, okay, do good Christians have to sell everything? and give all their money away? Am I allowed to have toys? Can Christians keep savings accounts? Can they invest? How does this work? I do think that there's a message about generosity in this passage because Jesus does call us to radical generosity. But I think there's something else in this story that I'd like to pay attention to today. This story gives us a great example of the fine line between self-righteousness and righteousness. But this man was obedient. He didn't compare himself or look down on other people like the Pharisee did. So why is this story an example of self-righteousness? 
think the answer to that lies in the man's response to Jesus' commandment to him. Let's go back to verse 21 and read that part again. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Here, Jesus gives three commandments. He says, sell what you own, give money to the poor, and come follow me. When the man hears these commandments, he only responds to the first two. He walks away sad because he had great wealth. He doesn't even acknowledge the part that Jesus said about following him. He gets caught up on the money, and his face fell because he had great wealth that he didn't want to give away. Ultimately, the man showed self-righteousness when he placed higher concern on his money than he did on Jesus' words. He focused on the things he'd have to give up instead of really listening. He held on tight to his own definition of goodness, and he didn't listen to Jesus' invitation. He showed that he thought he knew better than Jesus. In the first story, the Pharisee was self-righteous because he believed he knew better than the tax collector. In this story, the rich young man is self-righteous because he believes that he knows better than Jesus. We all do what the rich young man and the Pharisee did. We all define for ourselves what it means to be good and we ad strictly adhere to those rules for our lives, whether or not we're aware of it. We build our own ladders, and we climb them, and we come to depend on them to define who we are. For me, I'm able to identify my own self-righteousness when I get anxious. If I'm honest with you, I've been so anxious in the last couple of weeks. Like, so anxious that I felt nauseous and I've had trouble sleeping. And it took me a while to understand what exactly I was anxious about. Like, where was this reaction coming from? But once I sat down and thought about it, I realized that it was coming from a couple of things. One, I've got two more weeks left of college. I believe that in order to find myself as good, I have to keep a high GPA and submit a really impressive final project. Also, a few of my friends have been going through hard times, and I believe that in order to define myself as good, I have to be there for them all the time. And third, I've been really stressed out about this sermon. Every time I get up here, I just can't get away from, okay, what if I say something wrong? What if I do something embarrassing? This week, it's really been, what if I fall off this ladder? Then what am I going to do? <laughs> Thankfully, it hasn't happened yet, but I probably should stop saying that before. <laughs> I cause a problem. But in order to be good, I believe that I have to preach a perfect sermon every time. Graduating with a high GPA and supporting my friends and preaching a good sermon are all really good goals that I should probably aspire to. But in believing that I must do all of these things, all of these actions, all of these works in order to be good, I'm lifting myself up on my ladder of works and denying the truth of the gospel. I'm saying that I know better than Jesus, and Jesus calls me away from these works and into relationship. 
The truth is that Jesus calls us good no matter what we've done or what's been done to us. Obedience and good works are commendable, but we are inherently loved no matter how obedient we are, how many rungs we've climbed on the ladder. To believe that is to honor God's righteousness. So how do we recognize when we need to get off the self-righteous ladder? How do we identify the rules and the actions that we're counting on to hold us up above everybody else? How do we point out the unnecessary requirements that we've defined as good? Well, for the Pharisee to climb off the ladder, he had to recognize that he'd built one in the first place. For the rich young man, Jesus pointed out that he was too dependent on his possessions to even acknowledge what Jesus was telling him. Recently, for me, God's been pointing out my over-dependence on performing well. Maybe for you, you've defined goodness as being a standout employee or a perfect parent or a great boss, and you've put an uncomfortable amount of energy into hitting that target of goodness you've defined. Steve Cuss has a phrase he shared a couple of times that's helped me identify my own self-righteous ladder and get off of it. He invites us to fill in the blank. Jesus died so I don't have to blank anymore. For example, Jesus died so I don't have to be perfect anymore. Jesus died so I don't have to please everyone anymore. Jesus died so I don't have to be the best employee, the perfect boss, the most attentive parent, or anything else. Jesus died so I don't have to keep climbing up this ladder I've built anymore. Before we're even born, Jesus looks at us and loves us. And of course, I'm not advocating that you quit your job or neglect your children or anything like that. But I do know that when I've stopped relying on my own attempts at goodness and allowed myself to climb down the ladder and trust the truth that God is the only source of true righteousness, I found so much freedom. The first story that I shared today from Mark 9 is a really good example of that truth. The Pharisee did a bunch of good things and built his ladder high so that he could easily look down on everybody else who hadn't done quite as much good work. But God still viewed him as equal to the tax collector. In fact, the scripture says that it was the tax collector who went home justified before God. Because he who exalts himself will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. As the worship team joins me back on stage, I'd like to take a minute to think of the ways that we can begin to loosen our grip on self-righteousness and put our ladders away. Here's a couple things I've thought of. One, is we can ask God to show us how we're filling in the blank. What have we defined as good? Are our definitions of goodness more important to us than God's definition of goodness? We can also show God, we can also ask God to show us what beliefs we're holding on to too tightly. And if you're having a hard time accepting that God looks at you and says you're good, like I have this week, you can just type into Google verses about what God says about me. When I do that, I find so many passages about what God actually thinks about people. 
And I'd like to close our time together by reading part of one of those. I'm going to read a part of Psalm 139, and as I do so, I invite you to close your eyes and place your hands, palms up on your lap if you're able. If you've heard this passage before, I encourage you to pick out a line that resonates with you and reflect on what that means for your life this week. If you've never heard this passage before, I encourage you to consider what it might be like to live your life believing that there's a God who thinks these things about you. Here's Psalm 139. I thank you, God, for making me mysteriously complex. Everything you do is marvelously breathtaking. It simply amazes me to think about it. How thoroughly you know me, Lord. You even formed every bone in my body when you created me in the secret place. Skillfully, carefully, you shaped me from nothing to something. You saw who you created me to be before I became me. Before I'd ever seen the light of day, the number of days you planned for me were already recorded in your book. Every single moment you're thinking of me. How precious and wonderful to consider that you cherish me constantly in your every thought. Oh God, your desires towards me are more than the grains of sand on every shore. When I awake each morning, you're still with me. Amen.